HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by Tabard Inn, New American Cuisine, and one of Washington, D.C.'s oldest hotels, located in DuPont Circle. For more information, visit tabardin.com. Hey, 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 I'm Jimmy Carboni from Beer Sessions Radio. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Welcome to the Food Scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel, here today, actually taping in San Francisco at Stitcher Radio Studios. Thank you very much, Stitcher, for letting us use the space. I'm here with Maya Hirsch. And how do you how do you pronounce your name? Hirschbein. Hirschbein. I'm, I'm terrible. I usually ask a guest beforehand, how do you say your name? And they're like, kind of like blindly say, even simple names like John Smith. <laughs> You just never know how anyone pronounces anything these days. And I'm terrible at, you know, seeing a word and sounding it out in my head. Mine is especially complicated. (laughs) Well, thank you for at least making me feel better about that. But we're here today. This is a fascinating subject to me because it it seems like such a given. Olive oil is, is in almost everybody's pantry around the country. But how little we actually know about olive oil and how little we know about the national state of olive oil is is just confounding. So let's talk about that. You are here with how many bottles in front of us? Um, today we're going to taste four. Um, yeah, these are representing a, a pretty big diversity of the types of olive oils we're making in California right now, from very tiny, small producers up to the biggest. Um, so we're going to get a chance to talk about the spectrum of production and the stories behind some of the different growers we have in California. And before that, we're going to find a little bit about you because your fascination with kind of food and food culture and, it, it, well, single subjects mm-hmm. it started from a young age. Mm-hmm. You, you grew up in Southern California and in your backyard, you had an orchard of fruit. Yes. Tell me about that. 
So my parents bought our property when they were 30, which I will never be able to do. (laughs) But when they bought the property, there were some really old fruit trees. So there were about eight avocados. We had citrus of all kinds, peaches, mangoes, uh, persimmons, pomegranates. And um, without really even knowing how special that was or how rare that was, I grew up, um, you know, in summertime just running down, grabbing a bunch of fruit off the trees and eating it while I, you know, hung out with friends. And I think that was a really important experience just to complement the the kind of family food experience that we would have eating dinner together. Just having a sense of, you know, food comes from a tree or can come from a tree. Um, We also had a little vegetable garden, and that was pretty rare in San Diego at that time. I think it's becoming a lot more popular, but my my mom was ahead of her time in, in wanting to teach us about that. So that's really been a big part of my life. And this forged this idea in your head of, you know, what does food mean to a person? And where does it come from? That, that you know, bridging that connection. Um, you ended up going to school at the University of Gastronomic Sciences in, in Piedmont. Mm-hmm. Um, what were you hoping to study there? Because that seems like a big umbrella, you know, subject. Yeah. Uh, I, th- I think I knew that it was going to be a lot of topics uh, a lot of superficial coverage of a lot of topics. So we would have a lot of, um, you know, you would have five or six classes in a week, and it would be food anthropology to tasting tasting aged cheeses all in one day. Um, so it was so much information we were inundated with, and it was an opportunity for us, you know, having having already been had a career for 10 years, knowing what I was interested in, be able to kind of cherry-pick the things that I thought I wanted to bring back with me to my home in California. Um so I knew going in that it was going to be a lot of information, and I loved that. It's really good for the right type of learner. Um, but also the ex- experiential part of it, being able to travel and meet the producers behind all these products. So it wasn't just sitting in a class- classroom looking at PowerPoints. It was learning how to taste aged cheeses and the next day going to a producer of aged cheeses that had been making it for seven generations. So really getting the full story, hearing their challenges, their hopes, um, understanding the policy behind it, understanding import-export. So really big picture um, and holistic approach to food and food education. So you said, you know, you had a job 10 years prior to actually going to this institution, um, Mm -hmm. which kind of was in the food world, dealt with Mm -hmm. micro lending Mm -hmm. to, uh, you know, food producers. Tell me a little bit about that part of your life. Yeah, so actually that was the one right before I went to Italy, but I co-founded a company called The Hoop Fund, which we were attempting to create a channel online for really passionate consumers to make small loans to food producers or producers of any type of product, actually. So if there was a transparent supply chain behind a product, a person could come on our website and make a loan and then get product in return. And we were really trying to build a connection between consumer and producer, understanding the story of the producer understanding uh, what sort of project they're interested in, in developing and in involving the consumer in, in that process. I also worked for a really large foundation called the Gordon and Betty Moore Foundation for a few years, making really large grants to projects in South America. So I've always kind of been involved in uh, development of some kind, but through my work with the Gordon and Betty Moore Foundation, I got in touch with actually chocolate producers that were growing in Peru and Bolivia. And that's sort of the beginning of the evolution of my career moving more into food through sustainable development projects in developing countries. Alter Ego. Alter Eco, yeah. Yeah, tell me a little bit about their company. They're awesome. They're a 100% fair trade company actually based here in San Francisco. 
um, two really great French guys, Edouard and Mathieu, and they are very dedicated to support, supporting fair trade. They have quinoa, they have rice, they have um, chocolate, and I got the opportunity to help them start a project with their growers to actually get carbon carbon credits for reforestation projects they were developing on their farms. Expand on what a carbon credit is. <laughs> so carbon the carbon market has is, is changed a lot since I worked in it. But at that time, you were able to um, receive credits. There are a bunch of different institutions where you could um, apply for credit. But what we were doing is uh, we could actually measure the amount of trees we were planting, apply for the equivalent in carbon, and then sell those credits to companies that were interested in offsetting their carbon output. So you could get an audit and someone could say, this is how much carbon you're consuming as a company. Say, oh, we're going to offset that by purchasing X amount of trees that we're going to be planting in Peru. So we were trying to bridge that connection between other companies and us that were planting trees on our on our cacao farms. So, you know, we hear this word local mm-hmm. with sustainable so often, but we're talking about a global market here. Yeah. How important is that? you know, infrastructure for you to to support outside of your regional system? It is important, but I would say it's become less important, I think. Um, for me, wherever I am is, is my priority, and I think that's actually uh, why I was interested in um, each of each of my career experiences has pushed me to the next one. So I think I was so passionate about Latin America. I was studied abroad there in high school, and it was always like my kind of second home. And then over the last 10 years, I've started to become so much more connected to California and where I was raised. And so at this point, I feel like there's so much need for talent and for new projects here that I I honestly think a little bit less about that. But I, uh, I'm i really proud to be a Californian and to, to kind of bring my education back here and do work here. That education did start overseas and you tried working Grape Harvest in Tuscany. Mm-hmm. That didn't work. What happened? So harvest harvest in Italy, just like ever and any other wine growing region, is so exciting. You have that amazing smell in the air, and there's just a lot of energy. And I um, was in class, going to class every day, and I got the idea that you know I'm in, only in Italy once. I got to take advantage of this harvest season and t- try to find an, a wine grower to work for. Um, approached my school, and they said there was just too much bureaucracy. There was, you need so many so much paperwork in order to work for a wine grower, but they were like, but there's this, you know, this olive producer that we, that comes and speaks at, at our school quite often, and I'm sure he'd be willing to have you. Like, oh, it's kind of a bummer. <laughs> olive oil, that's, you can't, you can't sit around a fire and drink olive oil. <laughs> well, you can. <laughs> you can. And I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't put it past you if you do sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> if anyone does it, it's probably me. Yeah. <laughs> um, so they connected me to a really, really cool olive oil producer in southern Tuscany, uh, La Poderina Toscana, and um, really young olive oil producer. He was about 30 years old, and he welcomed me and offered me a home for the time that I was there. And so I had my own house, and I would just wake up and um, harvest olives from about you know 7 a.m. until about 4 p.m. We would have uh, lunches together and dinners together. And he welcomed me into the mill as well. So I would bring my olives and he would talk me through the process of milling. And I, that first, I think it was probably my third day there where I brought in my olives and stood there and watched the process. And you can actually like look through these looking glass 
holes in some of the, the processing machines and you can see it, you know, start to break down. And then you go to the end and you see the bright neon green olive oil coming out and going into these tanks that were where he used to store them. And I just, you know, stuck my finger under the that um, pouring olive oil and tasted it. And it was just one of those amazing moments where I was like, wow, I kind of made that in, yeah. in a way. <laughs> um, and it was the most incredible color, the most incredible smell. This entire mill was just intoxicating. And... Um, I was kind of hooked from that point on. Well, let's talk more about the process because you say you went out and you harvested these olives. Mm-hmm. What do they even grow on? How, how do you actually physically harvest an olive? There are lots of different ways. Um, this particular grower was using small hand rakes, so it looks just like a, a hand, like a spread out fingers rake, and you would just grab the end of the branch. These are small trees. These are like 10-foot tall trees. And you grab the branch and you rake the entire length of the branch. You have set up um, nets on the bottom first. So before you, you, you rake a tree, you're going to set up your net around the base. You're going to rake all the branches. Sometimes it requires you to climb in the tree. You have ladders there nearby if you need them. But it's just a kind of therapeutic process, the like bop, 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 bop sound of the olives as they pop off and hit you. I would go home with olives in my pockets and my <laughs> pants. Just they, they get everywhere. Um, that's the most traditional method. Sometimes people just use their hands. They don't use rakes. Some people use really long rakes, vibrating rakes. Um, that's more the traditional method. There are also some producers that wait for the olives to fall off the trees. That's very traditional in northern African countries where they wait for the olives to turn black, get really heavy with oil, fall off, and then that's when they'll collect them. That's actually some some places in Liguria also do that. They like the really mild um, mild flavored oils. <clears throat> and then in California, Australia, some parts of Spain, we're starting to do a lot more um, industrialized production where we plant in rows and we use machines to harvest our fruit to make sure that it's fresh um, and to speed up that process from harvest to, to actual milling, which we'll talk more about as we taste some of our oils. Yeah, today. well, I want to know a little bit about milling because I, I know like from chocolate production, there's those conchers, those even from like flour mills, two mm-hmm. big stones grinding away and creating a paste, which then, you know, you, you can draw the liquor off of. Is, is olive oil a similar process? Yeah, the oldest type of production was just like that, where they would have um, two granite, really heavy granite stones grinding together and um, a a horse or a donkey um, pulling that stone in circles. And so you would have that being ground to a paste, and then you'd have um, these mats. You'd pile the paste on top of one mat with a a pole through the middle. You'd, You'd spread the paste on each mat, and then you'd apply pressure and squeeze all the mats together, and you'd have the oil pouring out the sides. And that method is is still being used in some parts of the old world, but sometimes it's being criticized for eliminating some of that very, very delicate aroma and flavor because all of that oxygen that is exposed to at that early stage will definitely change the flavor. Um, the way that modern olive oil producers are primarily working is trying to limit the amount of oxygen that we expose the paste to. So almost a hermetic process. Some are 100% hermetic and some have a little bit of oxygen exposure. What we're doing is we're harvesting the olives and as quickly as possible, incredibly critical critical how quickly we do this, transporting the olives to the mill. We're quickly washing them. We're smashing them with the primary type of of smashing process is with a hammer mill. It's a really quickly spinning hammer. And that will smash the olive into a you know, thousands of small pieces, and then we'll relax the olives, which is, I always call it relax them. It's kind of just slowly mixing 
And that's the point at which we talk about cold press or the temperature is really critical at that stage because if you're using really high heats as you relax the paste, that will also change the flavor. So we're, we're trying to keep that cool in there. Um, and then we will start to separate the solid from the liquid and then the liquid from the oil or the water from the oil. And that's, that's all that, that it takes. And some of these mills can churn out fresh olive oil in 45 minutes from fruit to oil. Um, and a lot of these larger mills obviously takes a lot longer when you have tons and tons of fruit every hour. Um, but it's an incredibly efficient, quick process, and you can watch the entire thing and really quick, easily understand exactly what's happening at each, at each stage. And unlike, you know, nut oils or seed oils, mm -hmm. we're, we're talking about the flesh of the fruit right, itself. Exactly. Yeah. It, it's not, you know, this long process extracting, mm -hmm. expelling. Um, it's like you said, it could be 45 minutes for olive oil. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And you've tasted that 45 minute olive oil. I have, yes. <laughs> and that's exactly why olive oil is so special is that it is in the flesh of the fruit and it's a raw fruit juice. A lot of people in olive oil, refer to it as a fruit juice. Every other type of oil comes from the pit or the seed, and you need a lot of process or heat or solvents to extract that oil. With olive oil, if you were to go to um, an olive tree, um, they're starting to ripen right now. We're in uh, August right now, so we're going to be harvesting in a couple months. If you just grab some olives and squeeze them in your hand, you'll have oil on your hands. That's the, the beauty of olive oil, and that's why it's so healthy, and it's also why it's perishable, which is uh, the reason to to use it quickly when you buy it. Do you ever like exfoliate or, you know, rub it on your face in the field? I, I know <laughs> olive oil is used for a lot of things outside of the culinary yes. world too. Yeah. You see it in cosmetics and pharmaceuticals. Uh -huh. I mean, it has all these amazing properties. Mm -hmm. Again, you said you're trying to limit the amount of oxygen in it. What gets lost other than flavor and aroma? That's it. And if you think about uh, quality of a product, where, where the health benefits of a product, they're peaking right at that time when it's when it's freshly milled, and those things will start to slowly break down over time. Like if you, I often talk about if you just chop an apple and you see it starting to slowly change and brown, and lose its freshness. The same thing happens with any fruit and any fruit juice. Um, it will start to break down. It'll start to taste less good. It's not ever going to be dangerous, but it will just be less fresh and less interesting to, to taste. Um, but your question about different uses of olive oil, that's actually um, taught a class a couple weeks ago on olive oil body products where we're making salves and scrubs. And olive oil, before it was ever consumed as a food, was used um, to apply to the body. And so I like to talk a lot about that and um, remind people of its, its many uses, especially if you're you know someone like me that has a lot of it in your home, <laughs> finding diverse ways to use it. Um, the, the, the Greeks used to use it in wrestling matches and they still do olive oil wrestling. I think that's kind of a funny one. Um, but a lot of people that come to these classes come from Iran or different regions where olive oil is such a big part of the culture and they grew up putting it in their hair, putting it in their bath. Um, it's just it's such an important ingredient for a healthy healthy lifestyle. And we're talking like almost like 10,000 years BC that it was happening, you know, like ne Neolithic mm -hmm. Stone Age, New Stone Age, <laughs> that, you know, olives or olive harvest and maybe even olive oil occurred. And, you know, I, I kind of want to talk about the Greek because Greece consumes more olive oil per person. Mm -hmm. I think it's like 25 liters per person than, than anywhere else in the country, Spain and Italy. 
um, are after that, but they're only half of that. Mm-hmm. In the U.S., we sadly only, what, consume less than a liter per person of olive oil a year? Yeah. Why is that? That's a great question. <laughs> I think that um, food traditions being passed down from generation to generation have a big role in that. In the U.S., you know, beautifully being a country of immigrants, a lot of those things are kind of merging and changing, and olive oil being something that hasn't really been produced in the U.S. for very long, I don't think is part of our culture as much as it is in Greece where they've been, you know, there there are trees in Greece, olive trees in Greece that are 3,000, 4,000 years old. It's such a huge part of who they are. Um, And a lot of Greek people that I talk to just have so many funny stories of their food just drowning in it. And um, it's just, you know, part of their cuisine. They're used to putting it on everything. Uh, I don't know the, the, the reason why Spain and Italy are consuming so much less per person, but I, I personally love Greek food. I think they're doing something right. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, we're going to talk about, you know, food ideas or recipes with olive oil, but I was at Suvla, a newer restaurant in Hayes oh, Valley. Just, yeah. Mind-blowingly good, mm-hmm. simple, uh, you know, rotisserie, fire-roasted mm-hmm. Greek cuisine, but they have um, a Greek yogurt soft serve at yes, the end. Yes, and they just, olive oil. Just Greek olive oil and sea salt. And it's so simple, but the fruitiness that comes out of that olive oil is just mm-hmm. transformative. Yeah. Just kind of amazing. And there's a lot of olive oil and, you know, the, the majority of the food there, but it, it, it's, it's smart casual. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's this healthy food done quickly with slow food in mind. Mm-hmm. And Having that much olive oil is is not, you know, a bad thing. I think in the U.S. people worry about fat, worry about diet. And why why is that a concern when, you know, we talk about olive oil? Yeah, there's a, a lot of, of mixed information coming out about, about fat. And there was a time in the 90s where, you know, low-fat, non-fat was all women were eating, unfortunately. And now we're, there's a lot more information coming out about how saturated fat isn't actually as bad as we thought. Olive oil is a monounsaturated fat, and it's important to have healthy fats in your diet. I personally consume a lot of avocados. I, per- I eat a lot of um, nuts. Um, olive oil is a great source of fat. I think um, it's dangerous to consume processed fats, fats that are like, you know, trans fats, for example, that have been genetically changed so that your body can't recognize it and can't process it. Um, but I think raw fats are incredibly important to consume and help your body function. Without fat in your diet, your your organs stop functioning. Um, so I'm a big proponent of, of eating what you like, having balance in your diet, not obsessing about anything in particular, just kind of looking at what you're gravitating to. And your body usually sends you messages about what it wants. Um, if it's a you want it's a heavy salt day. Eat some salt. You know, don't be so obsessed with uh, you know trying to cut things out. Drink a lot of water. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, and, and it's funny that you said fat with the organs. Like you, you actually do need that fat. So mm-hmm. not enough fat can be fatal. Right. I mean, it really can. Yeah. And it's something that we don't talk about. You know, you have you need this nutrient. You need this nutrient, but you do need fat in your diet to sustain a long and healthy lifestyle. Definitely. On that, we're going to take a quick break. And I'm going to use my favorite word, my favorite new word. Malax, we'll be right back. You've been listening (laughs) to The Food Scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org.
Welcome back to the food scene on heritageradionetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel, here again with Maya Hirsch. Fine. Fine. You know, I should just phonetically spell everything in front of me. <laughs> well, as you may have heard by now, Maya is an expert in olive oil. I mean, you wrote a dissertation uh, or a thesis about olive oil for, you know, the Gastronomic Sciences University mm-hmm. of. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's not just like you're here because you like olive oil. You were promoting olive oil, uh, not just internationally, but specifically nationally and even more specifically within the state of California. Right. Yeah. So um, like we were talking about before, I kind of discovered and fell in love with olive oil in Italy. Um, but having come from California, wanting to come back home, was trying to f- find a way to bring that passion back. And through some research, I, you know, having never known this before, discovered that was there was a really large, robust uh, production here in California. So for my thesis, I designed an independent study and literally sent cold cold emails and cold calls to dozens and dozens of producers that I found um, and started in San Diego at my parents' house and winded my way through the state and met with about 50 different growers and just got out of my car each time and just, you know, interviewed each of them, got a sense of what their challenges were and brought and received a bottle as a gift from from all of them. So I, you know, in my Subaru had about 60 (laughs) bottles of fresh olive oil in the back. Um, and found that experience totally life-changing, just discovering within my own country um, a really uh, beautiful industry that I had never known about. And that's something that I can thank my program for is kind of opening my eyes to to asking those questions and asking for time with people. And if you are interested, you'd be so surprised how many people say yes when you just want to learn about something. So with that information, I um, wrote a thesis kind of suggesting that the number one thing we needed as an industry was more consumer education. We have 500 growers in California, and that's a pretty big number for for a young industry. Um, Most people are still buying imported olive oil. 97% of what we consume as a country is coming from other countries, uh, primarily Spain, Italy. Um, So as, as... food lovers that are passionate about sourcing locally, understanding where a lot of our ingredients are coming from. Like you said, when we first started, olive oil is in everything. It's in everyone's pantry. Um, Trying to encourage people to look locally and see if you have a local grower that you can start supporting, not only because you're supporting the local economy, but also because it tends to be really good. We're we're, we're making really good olive oil. Well, you also talked about freshness and, you know, the fresher the better. So why not have it within arm's reach then? You know, going through customs via air, via boat, taking its time to get over here. Exactly. Olive oil is, it's a, you know, it's a sensitive product. It doesn't like to be super hot. It doesn't like to be exposed to the light. Um, It tends to decline over time. So if you can get it locally where it's been stored properly, where someone has put a lot of care into the type of of bottle that they're putting it in, uh, you're going to get a fresher, better product. Um, and a lot of these products coming from Italy and Spain, they might be really good when they're sending them to us. But if they're sitting on boats and these boats are getting heated to 140 degrees inside these tankers, um, by the time it gets to us, it's not going to be what it was when they sent it. So talk about freshness. You know, th- there is a specific time of year for harvest. So there must be a best time of year to mm-hmm. be able to buy olive oil or like olio nuovos, mm-hmm. uh, as we know from Italy. Um, so when is that? So we start harvesting in October in California. 
and we start selling. So it's generally from October to about January that we're milling. So throughout that period, if you have a friend in the industry, you can get fresh olive oil. And then we start selling Olio Nuovo uh, around December and January. So the difference between an Olio Nuovo and a regular olive oil is a that it's that it's fresh, that it's being sold just in that period, right as it's being milled, but also that it hasn't been racked. So what we do with olive oil is we we mill it, and then we let it sit in tanks, and we filter out the sediment and the water at the bottom, um, and then that's the point where we sell it on the regular market. But olio nuovo, we won't rack it; we'll sell it immediately, so you get it the freshest possible. But it also has a shorter shelf life because there might still be a little bit of sediment in there. But it's um. Yeah, from Jan- I would say December, January is the best time to consume Northern Hemisphere oils. And then about six months later, um, it's the best time to be consuming Southern Hemisphere oils, like uh, Argentina and Chile and Peru. There are some really excellent Uruguay, Australia, um, a lot of really excellent um, producers popping up in, in, in these countries. Australia is one of the largest producers as well. You should have an olive oil calendar and telling you what region or what, what hemisphere to buy from at what time of the year. Mm-hmm. Um, back to California, I know, I know you call it a new industry or kind of a newer industry, but there have been olives or olive oil here since, what, the late 1700s, early 1800s? Yeah. So olives were originally brought to California by the Spanish missionaries as they were settling the state. So in their wake, they would plant olive trees. So we do have some trees in California that that get up to 400 years old. Um, and those trees, because they've been here for so long, they're con- considered a native a native varietal, which we call mission. Uh, we also have manzanillo that's considered to be a native olive. So we have, um, that's something I discovered as I was doing my research, these large swaths of olive orchards, really matured orchards along like the five freeway and off these smaller highways around there, you pull off and they're be- big, beautiful orchards that oftentimes are totally abandoned. Um, those orchards were primarily used to make cured olives. And about 150 years ago, there was a really, lar- really large um, industry for cured olives in California. There are about 70 cure houses, and now there are only about two or three left. So that was the major industry. And then about in the 70s, 80s, we started uh, importing varietals from Italy and Spain. These winemakers were starting to want to co-plant their grapes with olives. So we saw um, some more high-quality production, more diversity of of, uh, varietals. Now we see about maybe 70, 80 different types of olives that we grow in California. So within those varieties, Mm -hmm. varietals, Mm -hmm. uh, we we have, what, five bottles to kind of taste through and, you know, see the differences, taste the differences of olive oil. And I'm going to let you walk through a tasting because this is what you do for chefs. I mean, if anyone listening out there wants to be walked through a California olive oil tasting, contact Maya at, what is it, Mm cwestoliveoil.com. The letter C. And this is is what's going to happen. So break one open and let's start tasting. So I usually like starting with the most mild oil. Um, It's important to have a, a clean palate, so let's drink some water. Because we haven't been drinking coffee this morning. No. No, we have not. <laughs> so the first one we're going to start with is California Olive Ranch, which is near and dear to my heart. I work closely with California Olive Ranch. I'm working for them now doing tastings with chefs and trying to encourage more chefs to use California oil because they have, they're the largest producer. They have 
a really well-developed um, food service program. So we sell large quantities, like two and a half, five-gallon um, containers for chefs. Chefs love this. Um, this this is 100% Arbequina, and that's one that most people are familiar with. It's the most prolific olive in California. It grows a lot of fruit well, and the fruit is nice, fruity, accessible. Um, goes really well with fruit with food. Um, so what we're gonna do is we're gonna we have these little uh, tasting plastic tasting cups with us. Um, if you're at home, you could put pour it in a spoon. You could pour it in your palm. Um, you want to make sure that you're warming it up. So we're put put a tiny bit, maybe a teaspoon two teaspoons into a tasting cup. We're covering with our other palm and we're swirling it around. So right now we're warming it up. We're releasing some of those volatile compounds and that's going to enable us to smell and taste a lot more. If you think about smelling ice cream, you're not going to smell anything even though there are all kinds of good things in there because it's all frozen in these in these you know ice molecules. So same thing with food in general. If you warm it up, you'll be able to taste and smell a lot more. So we're going to stick our nose in this little cup Oh, we want to hear I'm those gonna, sounds. I'm going to sniff into <laughs> some quick, short inhalations. So, what I smell right off the bat when I smell this is some some green banana, a little bit of fresh cut grass. What do you smell? Well, I mean, it's a very buttery but kind of mild yeah. olive oil. So, mm-hmm. it, it, I, I know I've tasted this one before, and it, it seems so versatile because it doesn't really have a ton to it. Mm-hmm. So it's a, it seems like a great carrier olive oil. Yeah, that's why chefs love this. A lot of chefs don't want their oil to make their food taste like the oil. They want the oil to accentuate the ingredients. So this is a great um, oil for that. So then you're going to take about half a teaspoon into your mouth and you're going to slurp it to the back of your throat fairly aggressively. I'm going to make the sound on the air. <laughs> this is the fun part. Um, and you're going to let it kind of spray the back of your throat, and you're also going to try to breathe in through your nose. Through, through this process, so you can really smell um, through what we call the retronasal passage, which is the part of um, behind your nose between your kind of your brain and your nose. That's the best place to to smell. So let's take a little t- taste. That's really loud on the radio. Oh, I totally hit the retro. <laughs> Yeah. It's, you know, it has, it's funny because like you taste, I'm not going to call them bad olive oils, but other olive oils. Mm -hmm. And there's almost this rancidity to them. This, this overly bitter dryness and Mm. just doesn't, this is spicy. Like there's a little bit of, you know. Yeah. We call that pungency. Yeah. So there are three things you want to look for. You want to look for fruitiness, which I primarily perceive through my nose. So when I smell this oil, I want to smell a little bit of fruit. And I do. I smell some banana. I smell some fresh cut grass. It's just you want to smell something. Um, and then you want to have a little bit of pungency that, that tells you that it's alive, that there's something there that's giving you those polyphenols, those healthy antioxidants. And then you want to have some bitterness. Bitterness is something we actually like in olive oil. Um, most people tend to prefer sweeter oils, like an Arbequina. Um, but if you, the more oil you taste, the more comfortable you get with it. It's really important to also be consuming some bitter oils um, for health reasons, and it's also really tasty once you get into it. So, uh, this next oil is made by a producer called Laconia Crete um, out of Healdsburg, California. It's a really lovely family, um, originally from the island of Crete, and he traveled back to his um, hometown and discovered that his family had been making olive oil for 150 years. So he came back um, and decided to plant some olives in Healdsburg. And this 
blend we have here is a few different olives kind of mixing together the traditional Tuscan olives with California. So we have Pendolino, Lecino, Frantoio, Manzanillo, and Mission. So those are the first three that I mentioned are very traditional Tuscan Tuscan olives, and then those last two are kind of the California ones that we that we see older varietals of. So we're doing the same thing. We're swirling it around, uh, warming it up in our palms. And again, if you get any on your hands, just wipe it on your face. It's 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 great for a healthy glow. There you go. So right off the bat, you you smell a difference in this one. Yeah, absolutely. And considering this oil, um, we're going to be milling again in a couple months. This is already, you know, a 10-month-old oil, and this smells amazing. So it's unfortunate that, that people can't taste these with us, but generally a, a Tuscan blend will have more bitterness, more pungency. We like to harvest those olives a little bit greener. Um, one thing that I... That I like to not assume people knowing is that olives actually all start green and all mature to black. Some people are asking me over these black olives, but some of the, what all these producers are trying to do is, is really hone in on the exact perfect time to harvest. So this one, it's a little bit greener. You can taste a little bit more fresh cut grass in there, which means that they're harvesting their fruit a little greener. Yeah, talk to me about the mouthfeel too, because mm-hmm. this feels like a little looser. The, the, the first one, aside from being buttery, mm-hmm. like coated in a different way. Um, mm-hmm. How do you explain that when so you we, taste? We talk, we talk about greasiness, um, and greasiness will tend to increase over time. So a fresher olive oil, we like when it kind of disappears from our mouth really nicely. Um, and that just kind of happens over time. Uh, so, yeah, the second one, I don't really feel it in my mouth anymore. Do you? Yeah, no, it, it yeah. kind of dissipated in this wonderful way. Mm-hmm. But it's still resonant in my mind what that one tastes like. <laughs> you know, it, it was – we're so used to dunking bread in olive oil. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of people rate olive oil in that way. It's like, oh, it tastes really good with this bread. But mm-hmm. having it separately, you don't have that starch. You don't have that added salt. You just have this very elemental – Thing going on, and yeah. you, you you can tell those little variables, those little changes, and yeah, something as simple as mouthfeel completely affects the taste of the olive oil. And it can start your mind going about, oh, that would be really good with apples. That mm-hmm. would be, you know, starting to you think about different ways to use it. Um, people really tend to just saute with it, or they're finishing a salad with it. But once you start really um, narrowing it down to just the simple ingredient, you can. All these different ideas yeah. pop for this, like mind. peaches, ripe peaches, mm-hmm. like not not too tangy or you know acidic stone fruits. Yeah, yeah, the subtlety, like nice plums, everything that's available right now in California. And also in front of me, I have an olive oil tasting wheel, um, which is a, a great tool that I leave with chefs when I do tastings for them to kind of help develop their vocabulary and how to talk about the different flavors we're, we're getting in olive oil, and they range from. Herbaceous, green, fruity, fragrant, nutty, um, apple, banana, guava, red tomato, avocado. There are just so many ways to describe it. And just a simple pairing tip is pair it with what it tastes like or pair it with the opposite of what it tastes like. So if you have a really sweet oil, pair it with something really bitter like some, you know, arugula salad. Or if you have a bitter oil and you want to bring that out, pair it with a really bitter oil. This is so floral, this next one. This next one. So this next oil is made by a producer called Deerna, which is such an awesome name. Um, when he, this is made um, in Dry Creek Valley um, by a lovely man named Russ Messing, and he, um, 
when he was scoping out his land, he saw the deers were kind of the deer. Is deer plural? Deers? Deer. Deer were eating <laughs> everything, and so he decided to name fish, mouse, mice, <laughs> moose. So he decided to name uh, his his company Deernaw. So this is, um, yeah, very aromatic. He has a really interesting blend of olives that I haven't seen anywhere else. That's one of the reasons why I like him. He's blending French, um, French and Italian olives. So he has Nochara, Tajasca, Casaliva, Coratina, and Picholine. Um, and he just he chose the, those different varieties by sitting down and tasting other people's oil and be like, I like this one, I don't like this one, and choosing the ones that he liked. So this is a totally unique blend. This this one's fascinating because we talked about the cosmetic industry a little bit. And this mm. has almost like that aloe vera-y thing. Interesting. Yeah, at least I feel like it does. It has this perfume to it, but juice, juicing mm-hmm. is so big. And you see aloe vera in a lot of juices and a lot of, you know, smoothies. And I know it's whatever health benefits, but it has a little bit, a tinge of that. And this, this tastes like, I'm air quoting, the healthiest olive oil out of the ones. It just has this like... Freshness. Yeah, it has, yeah. It has this sense about it that it just... I know it's way different than yeah. the first two. So I I don't know why that is. It may be these French varietals that we haven't seen in the, in the others yet. Um, Picholine has some really interesting characteristics. Um, but I think it's 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 interesting to taste the traditional blends like, you know, the Tuscan blends and then going up to what we're the only people in the world that are making blends like this are us in California. In Greece, they're growing Greek olives. In Spain, they're growing Spanish olives. In California, we import what we like and we grow what we like. So you see someone like this coming around that just blended together what he liked. Um, and I love that. We're on the cutting edge. So you tasted this already. Yeah. So the last oil um, is made by a grower in San Martin, which is kind of near Gilroy in the Central Valley of California where we produce a lot of artichokes and strawberries. Um, this grower, um, Pan and Jeff Martin, Really lovely family. Um, they This is 100% Frantoyo, uh, which I love because it's native to Tuscany. Um, I often refer to this Frantoyo as kind of the Barolo of of, uh, of Italian olives because it's just the, the big brother, the intense one. And so this is 100% Frantoyo. And oh, you're yeah. Gonna, yeah. I got my nose way in there. <laughs> so we're warming up. We're sticking our nose in there. And this one will be higher in the higher in the uh, herb section, so tomato leaf. It's very characteristic tomato leaf. Grassy. <laughs> and this is an oil that I will just go through because since I learned in Italy, it's a very familiar uh, flavor profile for me. This is one that I can... I, I'll go through 375 milliliters in like days. Yeah. This is me. It's a little more pungent, but mm-hmm. it's like so round, so hearty. It's mm. like a hearty olive oil, like yeah. like a stewing olive oil. Yeah. I don't know. Like you say Barolo and I think of braises and mm. I would put this in totally. or on top of big old braised meat. Definitely. And this is also a good thing to accentuate a mild dish. So like a traditional like bean stew, like a really mild cannellini bean stew or something. Um, a winter stew with um, escarole and some Parmesan and a little bit of finishing of this frontoyo oil um it really brings out a lot of the the uh the mild flavors brings them to life um and and pairing like we're talking about pairing and that's you have to talk about olive oil with pairing you can't talk about it as an ingredient standing on its own um 
So that's why I love it too. Is you have to, it has to go with food. So therefore I get to eat a lot. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, let's talk about food and recipes because there, there's, I think, two big categories and one is cooking with and the other is finishing. Mm-hmm. So, you know, applying heat or keeping it yes. as is. Uh, what are your thoughts about that? So that's um, a really important thing that we're that we're um, tackling as an industry. There are a lot of different opinions. Um, we have tested at California Olive Ranch. Uh, our a third party tested our, our oil and tested up to the smoke point. That's how we often refer to the, the threshold at which we'll, we can heat an oil safely or well. Um, this one tested all the way up to 490 degrees, which is super high considering that frying is happening at 375. You're not generally cooking above that unless you're broiling. Um, frying, like I said, you can fry with any of these oils. Um, if you're, I generally recommend people to have two oils for, for home cooks, two, two oils in your pantry. You want to have um, a fairly inexpensive mild oil that you can use to saute with, use to bake with, um, that you can use a large quantity of, and then have one you really love that might be a little more expensive that you might you know, know the producer and have that to finish your food with. Um, so I would say, yes, use olive oil from anything from sauteing your eggs in the morning, cooking your salad, or, you know, as a salad dressing, all the way up to baking. Supple, um, su- uh, what is the word? Supplement. Not supplementing. Swapping out yeah. butter. Swapping, like switching out your your butter for olive oil. I can provide a resource for the ratios or if you just Google ratio um, of olive oil to butter. You can start consuming a lot more um, monounsaturated fat in your baked goods like um, banana bread or um, even just regular bread. Or just pour it over vanilla ice cream or soft serve with go. a little sea salt. It's 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 outstanding. Um, when we had met in New York, we were talking about cocktails. Mm, yes, that so that's oil. also a new yeah. exciting trend. Is um, at Saxon Parole, uh, one of the best cocktail bars in the world. They make uh, olive seven ways cocktail where they have a cured olive and olive spritz and olive um, in the in the bottle in the the glass. So. There's, you can start experimenting with olive oil in so many different ways um, from applying to your body to frying to putting in your alcohol. Yeah. <laughs> it's, 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 just, it's such a wonderfully versatile and, yeah. you know, not to trump your seven ways, but, you know, eight nights of Hanukkah. Yes. <laughs> so it, it, it has lore. It has legend. Mm-hmm. But it also has um, a, a place here in California that's very new and very exciting and everyone should really, really check it out. Yeah. And holler at Maya. Uh, again, C, the letter C, westoliveoil.com. Uh, she's willing to stop and You're doing like a national tour, going to a whole bunch of cities and educating people about how to educate about olive oil. So you might you might see her running around this crazy world. But thank you again so much for being here. I also want to mention that episode 117 of Katie Kiefer's What Doesn't Kill You. Um, Dan Flynn, the executive director of UC Davis Olive Center, was on too. So if you want to know more, Use these two shows as resources to get your foot in the door with olive oil. And certainly stop by uh, the Ferry Market has McAvoy Ranch, Stonehouse Olive Oil. Um, so you can Bariani, yeah. first-hand tastings. And, and we, California Olive Ranch, we have an office out in Berkeley. We're um, happy to provide tastings for, for any and all. Um, it's all about education right now. All of us as an industry are trying to grow our, you know, grow our outreach and education. And really put that retro nasal passage to use. (laughs) Thank you again, Maya. Thank you so much. You've been listening to The Food Scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel, hoping to have you back here next Tuesday at 3. Cheers. (laughs) 